sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, a condition labeled as rare, yet the medical profession may have that wrong. Even our senior producer of this show, Heather Schatz, was diagnosed after listening to an earlier episode of this program. Millions of Americans have the same bendy body condition. What is it and what's going on? Then it's daylight savings time. How do we prepare? But first, previously on this program, I've talked about the medical slang term for rare conditions known as zebras. Doctors are always taught to look for horses, which are more common. Bottom line, always looking for common diagnoses is how the medical system is organized. The problem with this approach is what happens when you encounter a zebra after you've been literally taught to dismiss it. Who defines what is a zebra or horse anyway? A condition that fits the description of a zebra is a connective tissue genetic condition that causes hypermobile joints, stretched out skin, and easy skin discoloration, among many other symptoms, known as Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Yet on social media, it seems more common than not. Celebrities like Sia, Lena Dunham, Jamila Jamil all report having it. So what's going on? Our next guest is an expert on the condition. He's no stranger to this show. Dr. Dacre Knight is an internist at Mayo Clinic in Florida and runs a clinic devoted to Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and he joins us in studio. Dr. Knight, welcome, as always, to our program. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to be here. We are so happy to have you back. Can you tell us, in as simple a way as you can for our listeners, what is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, otherwise known as EDS? Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is in the category of what are called heritable disorders of the connective tissue. So heritable being a, a key point there that this could be gene-related, something that can be passed down from parent to offspring. Connective tissue meaning all those structural parts of our body. So it could lead to hypermobility, like you explained. Lots of other things, a lot of things that our connective tissue is involved with in our body. I just brought up the whole premise that this is supposed to be a rare condition, yet either because of social media or maybe in spite of, it seems much more common than what the numbers would suggest, or at least by the people who report having it. How common is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome? It does seem like it is more common than we originally thought, right? And whether this is just from more awareness being given uh, or a, plat a platform being available to patients to explain their conditions and share uh, their experience, and that's being brought to the attention of their doctors. Uh, but it is at least, we think, it's a, at least for the HEDS, the hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is the most common type of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and, and we can get into that further, but it is looking like it's at least one in 5,000, at least. So, you know, tens of thousands of people in our country could be potentially affected by this. The prevalence is difficult to really study, though, because as you mentioned, some people might not know they have this until they get on social media and they see that others are 
uh, just giving some examples of situations and symptoms that they might connect with. So there's a, a potentially a lot of that are undiagnosed out there. You just brought up a moment ago uh, the different types of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Uh, could you kind of just lay that out for us? Uh, how many types? Uh, what are they called in general? Yeah, so the classification of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome has grown and shrunk, and going up back all the way to the 1960s. 19, yeah, 19, late 1960s, we had Dr. Peter Byton was the first to subclassify these types based on genes that could be involved. It has grown and shrunk our classifications over the years, through the 80s, 90s. Now, most recent reclassification in 2017, we have 13 named subtypes of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and that's still carried forward to today. And some of those subtypes are very, very, very rare and much more severe than others, and some are more common. So as it is for now, we have 13 named subtypes, the hypermobile subtype being the most common. Uh, one very prominent singer, Billie Eilish, uh, has said she has joint hypermobility syndrome. Is that also part of this or is that a separate thing? It's part of this, particularly related to the treatment, because when it comes down to it, what do we want to do to help our patients the most? How can we help them, treat them, and all of those things as the research continues? Because there's still so much yet we have to learn. So hypermobility spectrum disorder was interesting as a reclassification in 2017, almost a subdivision of the hypermobile group of patients with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. This with the intention that this would help research and understand these better if we are able to subclassify patients, potentially target gene research that might give us some discoveries of genes that are involved. Uh, having said that, though, before these discoveries are yet made, we manage and treat them as if they're still the same between hypermobility spectrum disorder and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Who are the people who actually get this condition? I I've mentioned several folks. Um, they seem to fit into a diverse group of individuals, but are there certain demographic groups more impacted than others? There are. And just from those that you mentioned, I, I should point out that it's not only celebrities who get this. It's not <laughs> yes. only people on social media get this. In fact, anyone could put, could potentially get this. Every ethnicity, gender, anyone could be affected. We do see, though, from our clinic and from our research that there are certain groups that are more commonly diagnosed. What that means, why that is, is very important area of research. And that was one of our first research grants that was awarded to study sex differences for one, why it does seem like many more patients diagnosed are women than men. And there could be different hormonal differences, other things that we're very interested in and keen on learning. Uh, but it, it's really, it, it, there's no one spared. It, it does not look like it's just a sex chromosome-related condition necessarily. So men and women are affected both, uh, but there might be different symptomatology between the two. So we are researching that, very interested in that research. Is this genetic? That's, that is the key question. So because these are inherited and passed down from parent to offspring, we do know for some of those severe subtypes of EDS, that there are specific gene mutations that we know are pathogenic and are linked to a diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. The most common type, the hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is the only one, and unfortunately is the most common one, and we do not know the genetic cause. So we don't know what it is, whether it's a single gene or multiple genes. The more time that passes, it looks like there are multiple genes that are involved, and that could be the same thing with the hypermobility spectrum disorder. So the answer is yes, it is likely gene-related, uh, but uh, that research is so, so important to understand. Is Ehlers-Danlos considered, uh, for lack of a better word, dangerous? Uh, is it tied to other conditions that, uh, that we really have to be worried about uh, or things that just are more chronic, like fibromyalgia? How does it connect to uh, the larger scheme of of other conditions. Yes, that's important. And it is an important message that we want to share with our patients that of all the research that is still going on and of all the things that we still don't know about it, that there is treatment for it. And there is a reason why we want to do the evaluation and make the diagnosis. This is not something that should be neglected. There are things that can be addressed and managed and hopefully prevented as far as other systemic complications that can arise. So is it dangerous? Well, when we're talking about the subtypes of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, the vascular subtype of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome does come with a decreased life expectancy. And that's certainly clearly very dangerous. It can be involving aneurysms and rupture and, and hemorrhages and things like that. 
the fortunately, the hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome does not have any decreased life expectancy. So in comparison, you know, relatively speaking, it's not as dangerous. But there are reasons why we want to make the diagnosis, do the evaluation, and put the treatment in place to help our patients feel better. I don't want to get into treatment just yet, but I, I'm curious. So because it's all about hypermobility and and there are these other things that we have to worry about, how does it present? I mean, what's what's the thing that tells a person that, hey, you know, I might have this? I mean, what's the clinical aspect? That's very good to understand because this is something patients ask, particularly those who have been diagnosed about family members and could they be involved in, and what should they be looking out for in their children particularly. So you mentioned hypermobility. That is one of the most common features. So joint hypermobility, whether it's dislocations, full out uh, dislocating the joints or, or subluxations, mi- minor you know, dislocations where the joint doesn't necessarily come all the way out of the joint space. So uh, hypermobility is one. Chronic pain is usually the most common presenting feature that our patients come to our clinic with. So widespread pain, unexplained, un- unresolved with any particular treatments and things like that. Uh, usually workup has been already taken for rheumatologic or autoimmune conditions that were un- un- unexplained. So the chronic pain, joint hypermobility, those would probably be the most common ones. How does it get diagnosed? Do you so is it something that they just happen to see someone like yourself who is a, a specialist and expert in this, uh, or is there something that um, the individual must do testing wise uh, in order to arrive at this diagnosis? Yeah, so we were just talking about those subtypes that we know the genetic cause for, and, and that's quite simple, and, and that's a genetic test. Of course, within reason, does you know, does someone actually need this genetic test? So we go through your medical history, your family history, which we say is actually the cheapest and quickest genetic test to know what your family history is. And when putting all those things together, then we can consider genetic testing for those some of those severe subtypes to see if it's necessary. Of course, we do want to have consent and arrange for counseling, for genetic counseling, because genetic testing is quite an involved uh, uh, practice that we, we want to make sure patients know what they're getting into when we're looking into the genes and mutations that could affect other family members, for example, and it could affect the surveillance that they need to do for the rest of their life. Now, for those, the most common types of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, the hypermobile subtype, which we don't have a genetic test for yet, we ha- do have to do a clinical exam. And it's uh, quite specific on what we're looking for. And that criteria is has most recently been revised in 2017, is already under revision again, as it should be, because we're constantly learning about these things. But that criteria is what we use to make a clinical diagnosis, as we say, which is something we do in a clinic during an exam by looking at the physical exam features, family history, medical history. And so that does require some experience, unfortunately, which is the downside of it. So if we are able able to get to that research that gives us genes or tests that we can just do in the lab to make that diagnosis more quickly and more available to more patients, that's a huge boon for the research benefit there. Dr. Knight, is this considered degenerative? uh, Is this one of those situations that you catch the person, you have the diagnosis, but you're worried that this is just going to now worsen with time and age? I think you've hit some of the most common questions I get in clinic, which is great. So, And this is certainly one of them. And and it's a, a heavy question that weighs on our patients. Like, it's great. I've got this diagnosis. Now what? Is this something that just continues to get worse? And, it, and with age, certainly... And the answer is no. We we like to think that the worst condition that someone is in is by the time they come into our clinic and then we can finally make the diagnosis and start getting some things in place for treatment and help do some preventative measures. So it's not necessarily that it will degenerate. Now, having said that, there are other medical complications that could arise, that, you know, setbacks that wouldn't allow patients to undergo the treatment that they need. Uh, but that's, that's not, uh, by and large, the, what we see. So this is, this is something that we do have treatment for. We want that message to be clear that this is something that can be improved. And we, we want to see our patients improve and have a high-quality life that they deserve. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and if you're just joining us, we're discussing Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at Jay Servan. 
we now add an additional familiar voice to our discussion, a person with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Heather Schatz is our senior producer for this program, and she has this condition, and she joins us now in studio. Heather, uh, welcome to the other side of the microphone uh, and to our program. Thank you for having me. Heather, tell us your story. How did you get diagnosed with this? So I've been hypermobile ever since I was a child, and I did all the things that went along with it. Um, Gymnastics, dance, cheerleading, contortionist tricks, because at one point I thought it would be cool to join the circus. (laughs) But as I got older, I noticed that I was injuring myself very easily, not even having a traumatic episode, just one day being like, oh, my ankle's broken or stuff like that. And I was in pain and fatigued. Um, And after back and forth for almost 10 years with doctors, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. But there were still a lot of question marks. They didn't know if I had an autoimmune disease or what else was going on. Um, And we sort of left it at that and waited for stuff to worsen. Last year, we were talking about... EDS and you, Dr. Servan, asked if I had it because you knew I practiced yoga and did very complicated poses and stuff. And I said, I've never heard of it. What what is that? You know, so when I was researching it and when we were talking about it on the show, I was like, wow, this sounds like a lot of the symptoms I have. Um, So I got a referral to see Dr. Knight. And um, when I was filling out the questionnaire, asking me about my background and, you know, saw him within a couple of minutes as it dawned on me that, yeah, I probably have this. So, so literally, so, so I can get it straight, literally the show is actually what led you to the diagnosis? Yes, 100%. I'd literally never heard of it until we talked about it and something in my head clicked. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is what the other thing is that I have. And I was lucky that I live here in Jacksonville, where Dr. Knight's clinic is based, and he was able to see me uh, relatively quickly. So, Do other family members have it? Uh, we just heard elements of genetics and family history. In retrospect, d- does that part of the story ring a bell? Not that I can think of as far as my sister or older relatives, but my daughter is extremely hypermobile and is a gymnast. Um, And every time she tells me she has growing pains or she's popping a joint or something, it freaks me out because I see me in her. And I know she's too young to be checked out quite, quite just yet, but it is at the back of my mind. How, how do you think your life has changed even before you got the diagnosis and then afterwards with this knowledge of that kind of puts this in context, if you will? So I think it made a lot of the other medical, medical mysteries sort of floating around me make sense. Like I had all these other things that there was no explanation for, even the fibromyalgia and this sort of answered a lot of those questions. Um, The other thing that it's done, which has been tough is, so I've always been an athlete and super active and go, go, go. And I've had to give up things like running and, you know, very tough yoga and a couple of other physical things I do. I can still do them, but then I'll be in pain for like a month. You know, the last time I ran, it felt like I broke my hip. So that's been hard because my mind is willing and the body is willing, but then I pay the price afterwards. So it's learning to see myself sort of in a different light or just changing what I can do. So now I'll do Pilates or gentle yoga or walk instead of running. Kind of adjusting uh, for the circumstances. Yes. With regards to you and treatments, and we're going to talk to Dr. Knight about treatments in a moment, but what, what, did, what did you do in terms of treatments to help you? Um, so once I saw Dr. Knight, I <clears throat> was referred to a number of other practitioners that are part of the EDS program. 
Um, so I've done some occupational therapy where I learned to use tools to help me sit better, to help with my back and neck pain um, and finger splints because my fingers are so hypermobile that like when I hold the pen or type, they do weird things. Um, this, some of the things that have helped the most are acupuncture, uh, physical therapy, which I've done on and off for a really long time and I do outside of Mayo Clinic. I changed my diet. I did an elimination diet mm. to see what caused, what was causing some of the inflammation and pain I had. Um, I do massage once in a while. And just, I think the biggest thing is um, just when I start feeling not well, learning to take a time out, which again is tough for me. Especially in a very busy career. Uh, Dr. Knight, uh, you just heard Heather mention at least some treatment uh, options that she had. Can you explain to us um, what exactly does treatment look like uh, when it comes to someone who gets this diagnosis? Sure, yeah. Treatment is quite involved, and, and Heather's experience, I think, is a good example for many's, uh, many patients who've also gone through a similar scenario where they've experienced these conditions for a long time, and, and finally getting some things started is you know sooner than better. And when it comes to treatment, pain research has come a long way, and, and we have a lot of great tools in our, at our disposal as far as how we can treat chronic pain, whether it's medications or even now some of the current research is even leading to things like virtual reality. And it's fantastic. But there are some unique features about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and, and hypermobility itself that does lend to a specific area of, of pain management and pain treatment. One of those is uh, what Heather mentioned, the, the occupational therapy, not only that, but the physical therapy really being a, a key ingredient and probably the, the most important of all of them. And the, the key there is having a therapist who understands these conditions well. So not just any physical therapy. Some of it can be damaging, in fact, if it's not done correctly. So we are fortunate enough to have them at our disposal, but they are also located all around the country because uh, it's it's part of some physical therapy training to know how to manage hypermobility and joint injuries and things like that. So it is it is a very important area. And, and I do empathize with patients and, and Heather's experience, too, of, of how this information has just come across. And as a provider, it's, it's I can only get so far. But as a on the other side, too, I, I've had a recent event in our family where we had a son who recently had a, a positive pathogenic genetic test. And oh. what's the first thing I do when we when my wife and I got that result was go online, start Googling, where are these centers? Where are the experts <sighs> right. located? And I couldn't help think of the irony that this is exactly what my patients are doing because that expertise is so, so important. But we do want to make this information available to as many as possible because just having this radio show, for example, may help other patients out there to know what it is about and, and where they can get help. Uh, one other question on the treatment uh, aspect. I heard Heather talk about diet, elimination diets, and, and things like that. What role does nutrition play in 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 kind of management and issues? It's such a common question, and everyone will always ask that about anything. I'm glad you asked that because there is a role for many things. As I mentioned, the treatment is multidisciplinary. So. It can be from nutrition, but it can also be from the occupational physical therapy. It can be exercise therapy as well. It can be yoga, as, as Heather mentioned, if it's done correctly, right? We're not, we don't want to injure our joints when we're doing it. So there are safe ways to do that. And there are some very good uh, guidelines and, and, and instructors out there in the world that do have a chance to guide you on yoga and things like that that's safe for hypermobility. But nutrition itself and, and even sleep, uh, but these are all aspects of our health that, as I mentioned, this is not something that is necessarily degenerative, but it does take an active role for patients to do these things that they are optimizing their health in ways of nutrition and sleep and exercise and all those things that would make all of us healthy. I mean, life, we could just degenerate from life itself, right? Uh, but uh, not just EDS or HSD. 
So we want to give all of our patients those resources to learn how to optimize all those areas. Nutrition is one of them. Uh, and, and in the area of nutrition, there might be certain groups that patients are reacting to that does and even give them some physical limitations, not only gastrointestinal disturbance, but uh, physical limitations or weakness or other almost type of uh, food sensitivities that don't allow them to partake in the other areas of treatment that is so important. Uh, and, and one other question about Heather's story. Uh, how typical was what she reported uh, in terms of how she uncovered it and how she, you know, how she ended up being diagnosed uh, with all these symptoms kind of happening for many years before without really a name or label on them? Very typical. And, you know, I, I, I'd like to give you the credit of giving more of our patients from the show <laughs> itself, but it is very, very common that patients kind of learn about these things underground, if if I can call it that, you know, or on social media of other friends or family. Um, there is an increasing awareness in the medical community, not quite all the way there or what we want it to be. Uh, we, we, again, we're talking about horses and zebras. We think about, you know, we hear hoof beats, you think horses. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, we now know these conditions are, may not be as much of a zebra as, as previously thought. So we do want the medical community also be aware. So they're thinking about it. And it's not just, you know, hearing about it on a radio show that someone comes to mind that actually a primary care doctor can be someone who suggests I do also have to say I have a lot of patients who have been given the suggestion by their physical therapist because that's a a good avenue where they're getting the care and they're doing those physical maneuvers where it may look like they have hypermobility. And so it's been brought up that way too. Heather, with regards to your journey, um, as you kind of live with this, um, here you had all these years with a lot of different symptoms, uh, no name, not sure. And I imagine a kind of incredulous doctors and nurses, just to, to use a friendly term, I think what the, perhaps the better term these days is gaslighting and things of that sort. Talk a little bit about that part of it. Um, the, you know, the, the fact that it, it, people may not have believed you, or maybe they did. Uh, I, I don't know. In terms of how well the system helped in finding the diagnosis, had there not been a show or you working on a segment... <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I've definitely been gaslighted along the way. I've, you know your body better than anybody. And we say a lot on this show that you have to be your own health advocate. If something's wrong, speak up and keep pushing for answers. And I was really sick at one point and a doctor told me I was crazy. And uh. that, you know, I was like, I'm not crazy. I'm going to go find another doctor in so it's exhausting looking for the answers and also the not knowing. Now that I know, it it's helped me again. I like to research everything. So I read a lot about it and I try to do everything I can. But the one part that's still really hard is that it's what's considered an invisible disability. So from the outside, if I'm not using any of my props or any of the stuff that helps me keep my body where it's supposed to be, I look fine. So it's really hard for people to grasp the fatigue or the pain. Right now I'm sitting here in pain. It's probably at level 7 out of a 10. Uh, uh. But I don't really complain about it um, because I'd be complaining every day. And some people do ask me or some people I try and explain it to, but that's why I wanted to share it here because I have other friends with the same disease and they go through the same thing, people not believing them. Um, and so to me, that's been the hardest thing. The other thing that's hard is learning to ask for help um, or saying, no, I can't lift that because then you have to go into an explanation and you oftentimes get weird looks from people. So, Dr. Knight, where do people find good information. I know the, the standard response now is to ask Google. And if you're of a, of a newer, perhaps, generation, it's chat GPT, because that's what everyone seems to be telling me now. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, short of AI and or uh, Google, what? where do you get more information on this? 
So I, I can't help but endorse our own patient education uh, specialists at Mayo Clinic, and they are building up that repository quite well. So you, you can get some information on Mayo Clinic's website, and, and we are growing that as much as we can. We do have our own website for our clinic as well, and that's a, a blog format we just update from our specialists. As Heather mentioned, we do have a multidisciplinary team of neurologists, gastroenterologists who contribute to that and contribute to the care of patients with EDS. So that's updated regularly with our research updates. Probably the best, though, just starting point, and, and that does have a global outreach, is the Ehlers-Danlos Society. And they have conferences and webinars that patients can attend. Their next one is in Dublin, Ireland this coming summer. I'll be speaking at that. And they, they also support research. So they've, they've got funding for research, which is so, so important, as Heather mentioned, too, trying to do the research on our own. And, and you know, just to think that patients are left to that. But that's something that we should be doing academically, right? Because it's there's so much still unknown. And, and modern medicine does just does not like to grapple with things that we don't know. And, 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 and many times physicians will just turn away and look the other way, whether they're gaslighting patients or not, where they should be looking into this. We should be doing that research so we do learn more and we can share that knowledge with others. Heather, what message do you have for our listeners out there who may hear themselves in your description? Uh, what, what message do you have for them? Um, I would say that if you don't feel okay, you're probably not okay. Um, and, you know, do some research and try and find a doctor who is willing to listen to your symptoms and help you investigate what's going on. And if the one you have is not helpful or gaslighting you, then try to find another one. Or like what Dr. Knight was saying, I've read some other stories from patients um, through the foundation um, and I just read whatever I can. And I have friends who have it. So talking to them helps as well. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's, you'll feel better if you get treatment for it. Which is so true for, for every condition. Uh, Dr. Knight, um, what message do you have for our listeners regarding this topic? Maybe a question that people ask you after they get the diagnosis that I or Heather did not bring up in our conversation today. Uh, what message do you have for them? Well, that's, I think that's a, a, a good one that Heather has is, is paying attention to how your body is, is either suffering from or improving from certain treatments. I cannot emphasize enough, too, which is what we talked about earlier, that this is not something that is necessarily degenerative. There are treatments that are available. Many patients are disheartened by other physicians, for example, that incorrectly give them information that this is something that they can't recover from or they can't have children, et cetera, et cetera. So we don't want that. We we want to focus on the positive. We want to focus on keeping and preserving function and improving function as we can. And really just ultimately, as, as as it is for HEDS, we're not dealing with any decreased life expectancy. We want to focus on the quality of life and what can we bring that will help patients enjoy the high quality of life that they all deserve and that that's what they're all seeking. Heather, um, I have one one uh, additional question for you, and and that is, uh, what about the genetic testing? Did you undergo that testing, and and what was your th thought process either way, whether you did it or you didn't? Because that, that often has its own concerns for people that do that. Yeah, so I did undergo the genetic testing, and I have the hypermobile type of EDS, so nothing showed up. And when I underwent it, I underwent it in the hopes of getting some sort of definitive answer. Do I have this or do I not have this? So I was willing to try everything. Um, and then going back to his point about quality of life, I found that it's really important for me, especially to keep my mind active and to keep doing the normal things that I did before my diagnosis as much as possible um, because it helps me feel better overall. And one, one other question, do you, uh, do you have concerns for the family, uh, if you will? Uh, as, as you kind of, you mentioned you, you, you underwent the testing and all. Uh, how, do you, how do you kind of uh, square off on that issue? I think it's my daughter who concerns me the most just because she's hypermobile sure. and a gymnast. Um, but then I'm not going to lie, like this disease does sometimes affect my family because I'm too tired or I'm in too much pain to do something. So trying to, 
explain it to my kids in a way that they get is also another challenge, but. I completely get it. <laughs> Dr. Knight, I'm going to give you the last word on, on the topic. Uh, any other uh, information you'd like to share uh, with our audience uh, regarding Elder Stanless? Well, not specifically, but just those resources. Again, I would just to make an, an, another um point to those as a very good, valuable tool to have for anyone who has more questions and concerns. So the Mayo Clinic website, our, our website, the Ellers Daniel Society, uh, and don't hesitate to uh, try to learn more about these conditions because everyone deserves the best treatment that they can get. And, and there's no reason to just, you know, whether it's one physician or another friend who's uh, gaslighting or giving incorrect information for you to stop your search of getting your quality of life and getting you to do those things that you're able to do that that help you keep up with your family life, your social life, your work life, whatever it is, all of those things that you should and could be able to do. Dr. Knight, I want to thank you so much uh, for sharing uh, your wonderful insight and wisdom on uh, this condition that I think we're all learning so much about. We really appreciate uh, all of this today. Well, thank you so much. Thank you again for giving me this opportunity because I, I think just this program itself can help other patients as well like Heather, and that would be a, a, such great value, I know, for them and, and anyone else. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. And Heather, even though I see you every week multiple times, I uh, thank you for sharing your story. I, I only wish you at least a good resolution and, and perhaps someone will figure out how to kind of eliminate all of the unpleasant parts of this. Thank you so much for sharing it. Oh, thank you for having me. We've been talking to Dr. Dacre Knight. He is a hospital internal medicine physician at Mayo Clinic and director of the Ehlers-Danlos Clinic at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. And Heather Schatz, she is someone who has Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, but she's better known to us as the senior producer for this program. Up next, Daylight Savings Time starts March 12, 2023, this weekend. Yuck! We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? Well, it's that time of year. Daylight savings time spring ahead. Personally, having lived in Arizona for 20 years before Florida, I really miss that Arizona, along with Hawaii, abolished this nuisance. I am not alone. Like me, most Americans really dislike daylight savings time. In March 2022, the U.S. Senate suddenly and unanimously passed legislation to do away with the twice-yearly time changes, making daylight savings time permanent. But the bill failed to make it out of the U.S. House. Florida Senator Marco Rubio reintroduced the bill in March 2023, this month. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine has called for the abolition of daylight savings time. In a statement, the Academy said the shift by disrupting the body's natural clock could cause an increased risk of stroke and cardiovascular events and could lead to more traffic accidents. Other medical groups are joining the call to end daylight savings time as well, including the American Academy of Neurology with its recent position statement. Joining us from Palo Alto to talk about this is Stanford University's Dr. Logan Schneider. He's a consultant neurologist at the Stanford VA Alzheimer's Center and a clinical assistant professor of sleep medicine at the Stanford Sleep Center. Dr. Schneider, welcome to our program. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Dr. Schneider, how does daylight savings time impact health? Well, I think the point that you raised with regard to the American Academy of Neurology's position statement highlights that well is that the transition in particular 
uh, from standard time into daylight saving time results in a phenomenon that we call social jet lag because you lose that hour and your body is off its clock relative to the social clock or the schedule that it has to maintain. And so that transition is the same thing that you would experience if you just went east one time zone arbitrarily. And so that has adverse health effects, not only on how you feel, we all experience that awful feeling, but that awful feeling is telling you that something in your body is out of whack. And as a result of that, your body can have undesirable health outcomes. And particularly if you're at risk, for example, the heart attack and stroke incidence goes up in the days following daylight saving time transitions. We've seen this in various different studies, uh, but also it affects you through hazards, right? People will then not get enough sleep or just by being out of phase with their wake alerting signal, which is what their circadian rhythm controls, can have accidents on the job or while driving, as well as other things like uh, instigation of mental health issues. So there are a lot of me uh, medical issues and and other consequences in our lives as a result of the transition into daylight saving time when you lose that hour. Let me be uh, super clear. I mean, it sounds like uh, most of the problems seem to occur when we make that jump ahead, that spring forward. Does anything negative occur on the other side of this, the, the fall back in the fall? God knows I love that extra hour of sleep. Yeah, we all love that extra hour, but unfortunately, most people don't take advantage of that extra hour. When studies look at this, most people lose 40 minutes to an hour with the daylight saving time transition. When you transition into standard time and get that extra hour opportunity, most people will get on the, on the order of like 20 minutes or so extra sleep just because they're not taking as much advantage on the whole. So maybe as a result of that or multiple other factors, we don't see the health benefits counterbalancing the consequences of the daylight saving time transition where you lose that hour. So it is great to get an extra hour of sleep, but still, nonetheless, your body does have to adjust to that new time transition as well. So it seems like multiple factors make that extra opportunity not adequately worth it, certainly from a health standpoint. They don't, you know, like balancing out the consequences of losing an hour at another point in the year. Why do you think that uh, medical professionals, I've mentioned the position statements from uh, sleep medicine, from neurology, there are probably others. Why are they calling for the abolition of daylight savings time now? Well, I think it's uh, this is an issue that has recirculated several times throughout our history. I, I think the thing that's driving it now is it's, a, a, one, an optimal opportunity. Uh, we see that, you know, despite falling on the wrong end point, of uh, Marco Rubio's bill, the impetus to actually get rid of this nuisance is there, right? And it's now reached such a level that actually folks in uh, the legislature are actually considering it. So one, I think it has gotten enough traction and people are irritated enough by it that it actually is something that people are aware of. I think also the data has mounted over time studying the ill consequences from a health standpoint of daylight saving time transitions, along with the lack of proven evidence to support the justification for it, which originally came out of wartime era energy conservation aspects, which it hasn't proven to support energy conservation. It also is something that, you know, it was posited to actually help farmers and the farmers say, hey, that actually doesn't affect us. Uh, our cows don't care what time you put on the clock. They rise and, and go to sleep with the sun. So in essence, like all of the supposed benefits that actually daylight saving time transitions were instituted for don't seem to really play out, whereas the health consequences seem to be mounting, particularly now that we're getting better at studying data at large levels, like population levels. So I think that's one aspect. And then the final thing is, it's not a zero-sum game, right? Once you have a health impact, right, we as physicians are in part, uh, uh, charged to do no harm first. Well, doing daylight saving time and then giving somebody the heart attack, you can't take that back when, oh, well, it maybe there's a slight reduction when you transition with an extra hour. It's like, unfortunately, now that person has a dysfunctioning heart, right? So in those circumstances, it's like, we need to prevent anything we can. And if certainly this arbitrary transition in the year can help our patients and just people not become patients by not actually having a medical issue, then we certainly should do that. So I think there's a lot of justification for it, particularly the, the growing evidence. In the intro, I mentioned the potential risk for stroke and heart attack. Are there any other health risks that uh, we need to be worrying about? Yeah, so I think, once again, the mental health aspect, I think, is a big one. That uh, it, It's sometimes hard to, to discern that, but it seems that the rates of uh, 
depressive disorders uh, increase as a result of the daylight saving time transition. And that makes sense, right? We have that condition, seasonal affective disorder, which is treated with light box therapy. And that tells you that there's something to do with how the body is exposed to light, particularly in the early morning hours as it sets the circadian rhythm. So I think that's one of the aspects. And another is obviously health hazards where increase, particularly after daylight saving time and on the job accidents uh, increase as well. So I think there are a lot of, you know, other health issues that can crop up. One of the factors that we face, obviously, is it's hard to get an adequate signal, even at large scale, when you get large populations of individuals, to be able to make definitive evidence of uh, the undesirable health impacts. In fact, I was studying specifically in your domain, uh, the likelihood of seizures uh, increasing in uh, incidence uh, in in individuals right after daylight saving time transitions. And it's very hard to get a signal there because particularly for intermittent disorders, it, how do you discern, oh, did it just not get documented or was it actually not happening? So it's one of those things that's hard to get sufficient evidence. But despite that, we've actually uh, repeatedly shown the cardiovascular consequences of this. And we can just look at people who have regular circadian disruption, folks with night shift or, or other shift work uh, have good evidence to support that the consequences of changing the body clock uh, abruptly and repeatedly can result in increases in cardiovascular disease, cardiometabolic issues, uh, as well as infection rates and cancer. So you, you can look at that and maybe extrapolate to the, why are we doing this unnecessarily if there isn't clearly a benefit to it uh, that justifies it? Well, you, let, me, let me follow up with that. Are there any health arguments for preserving daylight savings time? To separate the argument out, I don't think that there's any data that exists that suggests that having the transitions is still worth it, right? So I think that's a, a foregone conclusion. Like everybody looks at this and says, okay, we need to get rid of the transitions. The question really that I think you're getting at is where should we stay? Should we stay in daylight saving time where we have, we've shifted our schedules so that the extra sunlight happens later in the day? Or should we stay in standard time where the extra sunlight happens earlier in the morning before our day typically? And the data to suggest that we should stay in year-round daylight saving time, which is what uh, Marco Rubio has put forth, is not really compelling. I don't think there are a lot of health benefits to that. In fact, the major supporters of staying in daylight saving time year-round tend to be industry, corporations, things that benefit from more sunlight in the after work hours, things like golf as an industry, I believe that the candy industry also supports this because people are more likely to be out shopping and buying things uh, if, more, if there's more sunlight in the after work hours. Um, but from all of the health benefits, uh, the, there is really a, a larger corpus of data to suggest that, okay, we're actually supporting health by having the light before we get up. In particular, that is when the body relies most strongly upon the cue of light to set its internal clock right? We call it the phase transition happens right before we wake up. And then light helps keep our bodies on time. And in fact, if you don't get that morning light exposure, then your body is going to want to drift later. And so if we institute a year round daylight saving time, you won't be exposed to light, your body will naturally feel like it's desiring to drift later. And so ultimately, you'll kind of cancel out the benefit and you'll feel worse every single day in order to get some extra after work light. Uh, so in essence, that's the, the physiologic basis for it. Uh, and explains why actually having a strong circadian cue, like sunlight in the morning, is essential for maintaining the health benefits of our schedules, like aligning our bodies to the, to the sun, uh, which is why we're diurnal animals. Uh, so in essence, there are lots of research papers suggesting that living in a morning-oriented sunlight, standard time year-round, is healthier than daily saving time year-round. And if you wanted to look at that just on a how does it look in the real world? You can look at populations like those in Arizona and Hawaii and see the health differences between those who are in that versus, you know, year round versus those who are in periodically in daylight saving time. Or you can even just look across the time zone. Those folks who live on the western edge of a time zone tend to have a more daylight saving time like world than those who live on the eastern edge. And as a result of that, they have shorter sleep, poor sleep quality poor mental health and lower wages, uh, consequently. So if you huh. take a look at just what does it look like to have daylight saving time year round, you can kind of get that in a real world experience now, uh, in comparison to other populations or just even looking within a time zone itself. That is fascinating. Uh, 
Dr. Schneider, in uh, the few moments we have left, uh, I'm looking at uh, a team of people that are all struggling with the fact that we're all going to lose an hour's sleep this weekend. I'm on call even, so I'll even throw that piece in. What can we do to ease into this change so that we don't feel so strung out next Sunday evening and Monday? That's a great question. And it's the same thing that I do if I have to travel in anticipation of a time zone shift. Uh, Basically, the rule of thumb is that you want to shift your body clock at most one hour every 24 hours, because that's about how quickly it can do it in an advancement. But that's still tough, right? Because then essentially it's like, oh, let's make the step one day. So typically I use the three days in advance of the daylight saving time transition to incrementally move my schedule n block 15 minutes earlier each day. And that last 15 minute jump that completes the hour happens on the daylight saving time transition day. And so the way you do that, very small dose melatonin, like 300 to 500 micrograms can be used to pull the clock by setting it well in advance of your desired bedtime. So like five hours before desired bedtime, bright morning light can be used to shift your schedule by pushing it earlier. And so getting up and getting exposure to 10,000 lux from a light box, or if you're lucky and get sunlight, you can do that. And essentially just push things 15 minutes earlier day by day. And on the last day, that last 15 minutes happens and it's a much easier transition. I think you've helped a lot of us and we may have a little run on that melatonin out here uh, as a (laughs) result. Uh, Dr. Schneider, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today and explaining this complex topic uh, in a way that I think we can all get it. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. We have been talking about daylight savings time with Dr. Logan Schneider, where he's a consultant neurologist at the Stanford VA Alzheimer's Center and a clinical assistant professor of sleep medicine at the Stanford Sleep Center. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luffy. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella Da Silva is our director. Next week's program is our special hair show on the healthcare of hair. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jcer. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation and by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.